What? What is this? CIA? around the room and see who I recognize first. How many of you heard me speak before? Raise high. How many of you heard me speak before this visit? Not including this visit. Okay. Um, This is an unusual session in an unusual setting with anyone who has heard me taught before will tell you with an unusual teacher. We will go officially for about two hours. After two hours, any of you or all of you are free to leave. Those who want to continue after the two hours can just stay and I'm willing to go on with you to about 11 or 12 o'clock. Some of the material that we'll cover tonight, we will not get an opportunity to cover in any detailed uh, fashion, so we might pick it up tomorrow again. The idea for tonight was completely unplanned. Uh, originally, I did not plan to discuss uh, any of any such topic as women and Islam or anything like that. But um, I have an invitation uh, to go to Los Angeles and hold a seminar on this issue. And since I am tired of the um, traditional uh, rhetoric, I only accept it after being able to put together material that I think will be rather unusual and surprising for most of you. As an introductory issue, when we approach the problem, or no, it's not problem, the, the, the whole topic of women and Islam, we might have as well phrased it as men in Islam or trees in Islam except for the fact that women and the treatment women receive under an Islamic order has become an issue and has become an identifiable issue because of the number of complaints throughout the years about this particular issue. So in other words, it became problematized. If it wasn't problematized, there would be no such issue. There are other issues that deserve to be problematized, but are not. For example, the relationship of Islam to certain ethnic groups like Arabs or Indo-Pakistanis, the relationship of Islam to certain groups such as slaves, but which has become out of date, 
But the whole idea of woman in Islam remains, to a large extent, the soft belly of Islam, especially in the West. And being a male, I feel very uncomfortable talking about this, this topic because um, I have nothing to preach to you and I have nothing to convince you of. Uh, you can convince yourselves of whatever you want. My job is to present to you your roots. And I will say this again tomorrow, so it might sound repetitive for some people tomorrow. Islam has been around for 1400 years. Those 1400 years have seen many transformation and social dynamics as well as political dynamics within that civilization. Consequently, the product of that civilization is extremely diverse and extremely rich as I hope all of you are going to start seeing by tomorrow as we go on from one extreme to the other. And the issue of women in Islam has itself become transformed, constructed and deconstructed and reconstructed several times throughout Islamic history, which I hope to show you. There is a minor problem, though, that with the beginning of the, well, in the 18th century on to the 19th century, especially towards the end of the 19th century and then into the 20th century, the discourse on women and feminism, if we can use that term, became an essentially non-Islamic discourse. In other words, with the coming in of colonialism, the first emergence of the feminist discourse in the Middle East as in an excellent book by uh, Leila Ahmed, uh, it's called Gender and Discourse, I think. Um, she's a you know, professor at UCLA. It's an excellent book, and it's, it's, it's worth reading. Uh, shows that the feminist discourse that arose in Muslim territory arose not from Islamic premises, but from non-Islamic premises, in other words, Western at the time, colonial premises. The first proponents of feminism were for the most part secularists and in fact, as Layla Ahmed shows, the whole discourse was injected often by the British or by the French and frequently by force into the culture. That does not mean that the feminist discourse became an evil discourse. What it means is that the feminist discourse in the contemporary age, in the 20th century, became artificial to Islamic culture itself. So in other words, if you can imagine that there is a feminist discourse within the Islamic culture, and this is the thing that most of you would not imagine, and a feminist discourse outside the Islamic culture, what colonialism did 
was to cut off the feminist discourse that arose from within the Islamic culture and to replace it by a feminist discourse from outside the Islamic culture. But how can we say that there is a feminist discourse within Islamic culture? Was there such a discourse? Now, I'll let you answer that question by yourself at the end of this evening. What is important to note is that colonialism was not the only culprit, it was a contributing factor, but also arose at the time a certain system of thought, whether you want to call it the Salafi system of thought or some other name, that basically argued that Islamic history was un-Islamic. So that basically argued you want to know Islam, you look at the uh, um, the rule of the first four rightly guided caliphs, uh, Abu Bakr, Omar, Osman, and Ali. And then beyond that, except for the exception of Omar bin Abdul Aziz, who some consider to be the fifth rightly guided caliph, all of this Islamic history was an error and is irrelevant. And consequently, the argument was made quite simply that if we ignore the 1400 years of history and go back to the sources, the Quran and the Sunnah, and the practice of the rightly guided caliphs, we would discover real Islam and not the corruption that emerged through the 1400 years. In a way, this was the other side of the colonialist argument. Both of them negated Islamic history. Both of them detached a Muslim from her or his roots. Both of them rendered the years of experience and the years of literature within the Islamic history irrelevant to the Islamic contemporary reality. So, what am I doing here tonight? I am not going to talk to you about Aisha or Fatma or Khadija. I'm not going to talk to you about uh, the early women who joined the Prophet in battle or who went and nursed the injured. I think all of you should have by now heard about this and heard about it a zillion times. But the issue remains that somewhere, somehow, in the depth of our hearts, there remains a part that is not convinced. And perhaps not convinced because of the very blunt reality, what type of system would create a liberation of a sex, but the liberation would last no more than 20 years, and then hundreds of years of the Dark Ages would come in. To, re to repeat the point, 
to be and to be very blunt and honest and by the way let me say this and this is this applies for tomorrow any um, uh, this is without being self-indulgent or whatever but I've been doing this too long to sort of um, be nice about it I the more you do it the the more you become blunt and and uh, and rude so at at any point uh, that any of you feel that they are unable to handle the material that I'm talking about or um, simply are disgusted by what I'm saying just leave it's uh, it's, it's no big deal uh, you don't have to have convulsions or a seizure or a heart attack just get up and leave. Uh, you can go to other people who will tell you what you want to hear. So the blunt truth is, what type of civilization would create a liberation of women in the form of certain individuals counted on the one hand, in other words, you can count them and say, well, they're 20, they're 30, that's it. And then after that, does not achieve anything for the female sex except oppression. Tomorrow, we'll get into the philosophical arguments of what is oppression and what is the will of God and what is the law of God and all of that. Today, we'll just be much more mundane and much more practical. What I want to do today is sort of boring and tedious. And in my view, that's the only thing that is fun. Anything that is boring and tedious to me gives me a lot of pleasure. I want to introduce you to your sisters. You, often we call each other brothers and sisters. I'm, I'm not sure how much this means to me anymore. But nonetheless, it means it must mean a lot to some of you or all of you. And I want to introduce you to some of your sisters. And those sisters are long dead. And they've been dead for hundreds of years. But I want to introduce them through their text and through their actions and their writings. And to do that, I will not go into a rhetorical speech about how some wonderful women wear all of that. I will do what I think every Muslim should be doing in the modern age, and that's less rhetoric, less dogma, less slogans, and more facts and more thought. So, let's take... Okay, are you all ready to be bored? I, I want to see some enthusiasm with boredom. This is very, very important. Okay, let's start with a book. And I chose this book not for any particular reason other than the fact that it's a simple case study. This book is called The Glittering Lights for the People of the Ninth Century. Ninth Century meaning 15th century Christian era. And it is written by a fellow called the Sikhawi. 
and it's a biographical dictionary. Esakhawi, in 11 volumes, volume, 11 volumes of biographical information, he dedicates volume 12 to women. He's not an exception. If you look in Tabaqat Ibn Sa'd, you will find that Ibn Sa'd does not dedicate a volume to women. He has women dispersed throughout the Tabaqat. If you look into Seer Alam al-Nubala, which is about 30 volumes, you will find women dispersed throughout Seer Alam al-Nubala. If you look in Tahzib al-Tahzib by Ibn Hajar, you will find women dispersed throughout. But since I am by nature lazy, I chose the one who sort of collected all for me in one volume instead of going through all the volumes. And we will just simply go and examine some of these women and reflect on who were they, and if they have anything, if they can in fact speak to us through the ages and the years in our contemporary age. By the way, I forgot to ask, how many of you are over 25? <laughs> how many of you are specialists in this field, Islamic studies? Okay. Hmm? Okay. Ah, welcome. The over 25 question is because of my own bias as to the intellectual maturity of people. <laughs> I told you I'm rudely blunt. So I wanted to see how much should be revealed and how much should be concealed. A woman. Her name is Alif. That is her name. Simply Alif. She is the daughter of a judge, and the judge is called Alam al-Din Salih ibn Umar ibn Raslan al-Balqini, a famous judge. She has a brother who is called Muhammad and a sister, but her brother is insignificant and no one knows anything about him. She marries Abdul Qadir Ibn al-Ahmadi. And after marrying Abdul Qadir Ibn al-Ahmadi, she marries Abdul Qadir Ibn al-Rassam al-Hamawi. And when she marries Abdul Qadir Ibn al-Rassam al-Hamawi, she gives birth to a kid, a child. Then she marries Amir al-Mu'mineen al-Mustanjid billah, Yusuf. And she gives birth to a daughter. And then after that, she marries her cousin, but her cousin was married to her sister, and her sister died, and after she died, she marries her cousin. So, the first thing we know about this woman, she is the daughter of a judge. She married four times, gave birth twice. In the four marriages, the divorce is initiated once, 
by Amir al-Mu'mineen initiated by her three times. Well, actually two times. She sticks to the last husband. She doesn't <laughs> divorce him. When she marries her cousin, she establishes a school and administers the school. And the school had a dual function to teach fiqh and strangely enough to care for widows and orphans. Her son dies and after her son dies she increases her efforts in administrating the school. Then she starts reading hadith and tafsir. And among those who teach her are Ibrahim al-Hamawi, wa Fakhr al-Daymi, wa al-Balbisi, wa Ibn Khalil al-Hisaini, and others. If you don't, let me put this in context. Al-Hamawi is a famous jurist. Uh, Al-Daymi is a famous jurist. Al-Balbisi is a famous jurist. Then her husband, the fourth one, dies. And her daughter dies. And at that point, she increases her effort in administrating the school. And she dedicates her time to administrating the school fully. In other words, she does it full time. Until she dies at that point. Knowing that this woman died in the 5th century Hijra. What can her seerah, what can what we know about her life tell us about something of how women could have been functioning in the civilization at the time? It's your turn to speak. She seemed to be in control. Correct, but too general. The fact that she divorced her husband twice, her husband. Well, it's quite interesting that this woman evidently marries three times and then marries a fourth and it doesn't seem that there's a stigma that sticks to her as a divorced woman, does there? And in fact, she has a child from her second marriage. But who marries her the third time? Amir al-Mu'mineen himself. Khalifa at the time. Now, you tell me in the contemporary age, a divorced woman with a child, what's her status? No welfare. Very much. She establishes school and runs it, we know, while her son and her daughter are alive. And her husband is alive. Now think about this. A school that teaches fiqh takes care of widows and takes care of orphans. A school that has an enrollment of about 500 students. How much effort would it take to run a school like that? With two children and a husband. And the indications are that every time someone died, 
she would have more free hand on her, on, she would have more free, she would have free time on her hand, more free time on her hand, and increases her efforts in the school. And at one point, quite late in her life, after the death of her last husband and her children, she starts studying fiqh with very famous jurists. Now, reflect upon this. Re really, don't take it as a bunch of facts. Reflect upon this. In fact, in our age, compare this to our contemporary reality. How many women do you and I know at the age of 40, 40-something, 40 at the late 40s, would decide to start on start to would decide to start becoming a faqiha after establishing a school in fiqh and it seems that this woman who's the daughter of a judge with an insignificant brother um, was quite unfazed but by what she met in life okay not to belabor the point Case study number two. Hijra. Fifth century Hijra. Where was she? She was in Baghdad. Okay. Case study number two. You ready? Ruqayya. Her name is Ruqayya. Ibn Ali. Ibn Muhammad, Ibn Musa, Ibn Mansur al-Asl al-Madani, in other words, she's originally from Medina, her father's originally from Medina, it doesn't matter. She marries someone who is 11 years older than she is. And after marrying this someone that is 11 older than she is, in, fa in fact, he is a judge and called Muhammad, Muhammad ibn Abdul Rahman ibn Salah al-Qadi, he's a judge. She evidently studies with him and acquires an ijazah from him. Anyone here know what an ijazah means? A license. A license to do what? It's non-specific. In other words, the license has to tell us what to do. So, she acquires a license from him. So obviously she studied. Then, she writes several books on hadith and fiqh. Upon the distribution of these books, she is issued an ijazah bi istida'a for the Islamic studies. What does an ijazah bi istida'a mean? Well, sort of unfair because it's sort of technical. Ijazah bi istida'a means an honorary ijazah. You get a certificate of authenticity, an ijazah, by studying under someone. You study under someone and then he or she issues you a certificate saying, I certify the competence of this person over this field. An ijazah based idaa is simply someone writing to you and saying, I've heard about you, can I please give you an ijazah? 
or writing to someone and say, have you read my books? Now that you've read my books, can you give me an ijazah? Can you certify to my authenticity? So this woman, in the year 800, um, in, the re- in the year 801, Islamic, so this is the 9th century uh, Islamic uh, Christian, it's uh, 18th century. Yeah, no, 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 it's 15th century, sorry, 15th century. She issues an honorary ijazah from the following Al Abnasi. Al Abnasi is not a well known jurist. Al Iraqi, not a well known jurist. Ibn Al Haytami, this is Ibn Hajar Al Haytami, a very famous jurist. Al Balqini, a very famous jurist. Ibn Al Mulaqqan, a very famous jurist. Al Sadr Al Minawi, not a famous jurist. Al Ghimari, a famous jurist. Al Majd Ismail Al Hanafi, a famous jurist. And others. And then Al Sakhawi quite humbly says, and I myself sought her out, and she gave me a certificate of authenticity. In other words, after being offered all these honorary certificates, all these honorary ijazas, she issues an ijazah to Sikhawi, who is writing about her, and others. And then she dies, and Sikhawi sadly comments that she dies after becoming somewhat senile towards the end of her life. I told you, the most informative things are the things done in a boring fashion. Let's take another woman. And I'm doing this, I'm going, this is called Tawatur al-Adilla, accumulation of evidence. I, I, I hope that by doing this, we will once and for all get rid of the impression that there were exceptions. And I plan to pile up the evidence on your head so massively that the conclusion will be self-evident. And then you can draw your own conclusions about your own socio-economic, cultural situation in the contemporary age from that. And I, I hope this is not too boring, especially for the non-Muslim, because it's sort of a bit too technical, but I might get a bit dogmatic for your sake towards the end, and start entertaining you a bit. Her name is Amina ibn al-Shams, Muhammad bin Ali, and so on, so on, so on. She was born in Cairo. She was born in the year, in the year 810. And she is educated with fuqaha at, at the time, and she marries a faqih. But she marries, and here is a very interesting note. فَزَوَّجَهَا أَبُوهَا بِإِبْنِ الْفَقِيهَا كَذَا 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 her father marries her to the son of the faqih What's a faqih Female jurist. So her husband is identified by the fact that he is the son of the faqih and not the son of the faqih. 
after she marries the son of the faqiha, she gives birth to several kids, and then he names the kids, of course, as, as was the, the, uh, the uh, practice. And then she is issued several ijazah, min al-mu'atabarin. Min al-mu'atabarin means from the famous jurists. And then he goes to list, list the famous jurists. And then he says, she was even if issued an ijazah by my own teacher. And after issuing, after attaining several ijazah, she herself issues her own ijazahs to several other students. Case number four. A woman, also called Amina, the daughter of Nasr al-Din, Abi al-Fatih, Nasrallah. She is born in Cairo. However, she is of Asqalani origin. She is a Hanbali. And she was born 700, the year 707. 770, sorry, sorry. And by the time she gets done with her life, she is issued 93 ijazas, certificates from 93 jurists. Among them, Abu Bakr, Muhammad ibn Zaki Abdul Rahman al-Mizzi, Muhammad ibn Muhammad Dawood ibn Hamza, Ibrahim ibn Abi Bakr ibn Umar, Al-Shihab, Ahmad ibn, ah ibn Abi Bakr, he's a famous jurist, Ahmad ibn Abdul Hadi, a famous jurist. And then he says, she taught for a while, and she taught me, the writer, parts of the seerah until she died while she was teaching him. Go on with several more case studies. I'll, I'll actually, I'm going to bore the heck out of you with the case studies. I think, I really think there is no other way for me to relate what I know about my culture and my civilization other than that. Because standing up, standing up and giving you some charismatic lecture about our greatness is all, could always be waved away as, well, he's liberal. Um, so, let's just be very meticulous about the evidence. Another woman. This woman is from, Damas from Damascus. And all he says about her, that he met her and he sought her out in Damascus, the writer, and went to her in Damascus where he studied with her until he got a license, an ijazah from her, and that he learned ilm al riwayah the, the, the science of narration from her. Her name is Asma ibn Ahmed ibn Ismail and so on. Okay, another woman. Her name is Asma ibn Abdullah ibn Muhammad. So on, so forth. She's also Damascus. She's from Damascus. She's a Hanafi this time. 
this woman studied under her father first and then studied under several jurists among them Muhammad al-Maksini and al-Khatib both of them famous jurists and then she was issued by the time she died uh, yeah. 26 she, she has studied under 26 different sheikhs and was issued 90 different ijazas from the 26 sheikhs. In other words, a sheikh could issue an ijaza in grammar, one in fiqh, one in sarf. So she has accumulated 90 ijazas. Important note, she had four children at the time she was acquiring her ijazas. Her last ijaza she acquired at the age of 62. She taught several people and issued 30 ijazas of her own to 30 men. Among them, jurists that are not famous, so I'm not going to name them. Case study number six. This woman is a Hanbali. And her, her common name is Umm al-Khaliq. I'm sorry, Amat al-Khaliq. Amat al-Khaliq is, Umm al-Khaliq would be sort of a kufri name, but Amat al-Khaliq would be a good name. She's the daughter of such and such and such. She's a Hanbali. She studies and, issue and receives an ijazah on Sirat ibn Hisham. How many of you heard of Sirat ibn Hisham? Sirat ibn Hisham is, other than Sirat ibn Ishaq, is our main source about the life of the Prophet. Anything we know about the Prophet is basically through Ibn Ishaq or Ibn Hisham. Well, actually, that's not quite accurate, but anyway, it's, it's a nice, comfortable generalization. Uh, but it's, he's a very important fellow, to suffice to say, for the seer. But anyway, she studies it and writes a commentary on Sirat Ibn Hisham and on Musnad Ahmad Ibn Hanbal. You know who Ahmad Ibn Hanbal is? Who's Ahmad ibn Hanbal? All the Muslims should be able to answer this. Okay, founder of the Hanbali school. And Ahmad ibn Hanbal, what is the Hanbali school famous for? Yeah, and, and sort of their, their common reputation these days. Yeah, their conservatism. So here is, we have this Hanbali woman. She writes a commentary on the book of Ahmad ibn Hanbal. And obviously she didn't think that that was haram. But anyway, she is issued an ijazah, and here it's very interesting. She is issued an ijazah by another woman, Faqiha, called Aisha ibn Abdul Hadi. And she then receives several other ijazahs. And then she issues her own ijazah to several men, six men, and three women. And... Then the author notes something that is very interesting. She is competent in the field. She wrote a sharh on Sirat ibn Hisham and Musnad Ahmad ibn Hanbal. For those whose specialty are Islamic studies, that means she is probably in which field? Fiqh or Hadith? Probably Hadith, right? So, 
he, he, the author is careful to note that she memorized most of the Quran, but she used to recite it constantly. And she memorized the famous jurisprudential book, Al-Minhaj Al-Far'i. It's a famous work of jurisprudence. It's about like two volumes, unpublished. And she memorized Al-Fiyat Ibn Malik, which is one of the most, which is essential Maliki book, by heart. And she memorized several other books on fiqh. But after that, her husband died when she was 33 years old. And by that time, she has already acquired all the ijazas that she, all the licenses that she has acquired. And she never married after him. And she continued to teach without remarriage. Contrast her to our first sister. And I'll use sister here sort of just for your own sake. I mean, if it makes you. So we've seen a model. One that marries four. And obviously is quite accomplished in her own right. And one that marries one and remains extremely devout. Even at the age of 33, she is unable to marry again. But continues on in her own, in her own life. Evidently, the fact that she was a widow didn't prevent people from studying with her or teaching her. Now, case study number seven. Are you bored yet? Okay, good. <laughs> Alhamdulillah. <laughs> this woman is from Cairo. She is born in the in the year eight hundred, in the year in year seven hundred and eighty, so in the eighth century. In other words, the fifteenth um, um, century, right? Yeah. So <clears throat> she studies Sahih al-Bukhari among other books. And it is said that she becomes completely competent with Sahih al-Bukhari. And Abu Huraira ibn al-Zahabi, who is a famous jurist, issues her a license to interpret and comment on Sahih al-Bukhari. Then she goes to Hajj with her husband. But then after that, she wants to go to Hajj again. And her husband this time declines, so she goes on her own. Then after that, she goes to Hajj on her own. And she starts teaching during her husband's lifetime, which the author is careful to note, did never taught and was never able to acquire a position in a school. And while doing this, she used to entertain a group of scholars, she used that she used to uh, invite and honor or celebrate a group of ulama of, of in the presence of her husband, who she was obviously kind enough to invite to these functions. And evidently he dies 
and she outlives him and she doesn't marry after him and she continues teaching and issues by the time she dies 50 something ijazas for different fuqah. Okay, case study number eight is another woman. Trust me, her name is Umm Malik ibn Ibrahim, who acquires several ijazas and issues several ijazas, the same old story. Case, which case study are we now on? Nine? Good. We're going to keep going. Actually, I think you skipped one. I think we're on ten now. We're in ten? Okay, good. Barakallah. I told you I'll pile the evidence. Her name is Habibatullah. What does Habibatullah mean? The beloved one. The beloved one, yeah, the one that, that Allah loves, or the beloved one to Allah. Habibatullah is her kunya. This is what she becomes famous for. Her true name is Ibnatul Safa. Now, how do you acquire a name, by the way, a kunya, by the way? How do you acquire a famous name that you're known by? Some incident, some reputation. So her reputation became the, be, the, be, the one beloved to Allah. Reflect upon that. I want to see a woman in our modern age, a Muslim woman, get the kunya of the beloved one to Allah. If that happens, uh, then, uh, then I'll promise I'll shave all my hair uh, <laughs> and uh, grow a beard. <laughs> so, Ibn Tusafa, who is born in Baghdad, uh, then she later on immigrates to Shiraz in Iran. Uh, She, she acquired several ijazas, issued several ijazas, the same old story. But then, while she does that, her husband, who is a very famous faqih, by the way, and do you want to know his name? Well, I'll tell you anyway. Al-Ala Muhammad ibn Sayyid Afif al-Din. And he, she, gives birth to several children, both of them are professors, both of them are teaching, but then she discovers that he went and secretly married another woman. Secretly. He went and secretly married another woman. 
And when she found out, he immediately ran and divorced his second wife. He immediately ran and divorced his second wife in fear of her anger and wrath. And she lives with him happily ever after until they die. How did the second wife do? The second wife is divorced. She accepted being a second wife, so she goes and drinks from the cup of her own actions. I don't know. But if he's actually, yeah, because if he's a famous faqih, and she's a famous faqiha, there is no way she wouldn't know. The important point here is that he tried to do it secretly. And the important point is he ran. <laughs> he ran and divorced her as soon as he found out that his wife found out. And in fear of her wrath. خَوْفًا مِنْ صَخَطِهَا we're not talking about people in the 80s or 70s. We are talking about people in the 14th, in, in, we are talking about people in the 14th century Christian or 15th century Christian. Are these people all um, circa 14th or 15th century? No, I knew someone was going to ask that. And, and I was going to start giving you some women from earlier. But we, if, you're not going to, if you don't tell us, then we can assume 14th or 15th. No, I'll tell you. Okay. Always ask me if I don't tell you. Okay. She was, I forgot, she was originally from Okay. She was actually uh, Okay. Yeah, she, she was originally from Iraq, but immigrated to Shiraz. And she was born in the year 817 Islam. Okay, let's meet another woman. Now, of course, the men are sitting there and saying, why the heck did we come to this? <laughs> Give us some men who did something right in their life, but her name is Ruqayya Ibn Sharaf Muhammad bin Kaza bin Kaza bin Kaza. She's originally from Damascus, but before that from Cairo. And her fa her father and her grandfather are famous jurists because they're known as Ibn Abna Qari, who um, are famous people. She is issued an honorary certificate in fiqh from no one less than Yahya ibn Yusuf ibn al-Masri. That's a very famous source. Take my word for it. And upon hearing that, that she was issued this honorary certificate, several of my friends, several of his jurist friends, wrote to her to give, to give them honorary certificates. But she said that I will not give you honorary certificates unless you come. 
and I examine you. So several of them traveled to her. And they went and read with her or been examined uh, by her and became her students. They became too many. And when they became too many, she's closed. She had to start turning down many of them. This woman goes on in high demand, and she seems to have been a methodical and fairly boring jurist, and one that sort of turns a lot of people away. And then he says that she issues an ijazah to, uh, well actually no, uh, that he says that she eventually, she has an ijazah or a license from all of the shiyukh of that time that it seems that she was able to attain an ijazah from most of the shiyukh of that time, at least most of the famous shiyukh that I've heard of. So obviously she became extremely famous that she was just had honorary degrees being reigning on her. And then he says uh, other, other information on her that I think. Another jurist, her name is Zainab. She is, um, let's see where she's from. She's from. She, um, well, her name is Zainab, and anyway, Zainab ibn Kamal, such and such, she was born in the year 275. Uh, for some reason, he doesn't uh, mention where she's originally from. No, she's from Egypt. She's from Egypt. <coughs> and she becomes a competent and an expert in the Sira. And she becomes very famous in the Riwayat al-Hadith and the Sira. And then she met a jurist whose name uh, was Ram al-Manawi. Well, actually, uh, no, sorry, scratch that. Her, his name is uh, Sheikh Madin uh, ibn Ziyad. And she wanted to marry him. But her father refused that she would marry the jurist. And he insisted that she would marry from another jurist. But she insisted that she wanted to marry the jurist she loves. And eventually she weakened and caved in and married the jurist that her father wanted. The second jurist was called the Zain. And no more than a couple of weeks passed till she went to him and demanded a divorce. And he divorced her, and she never remarried again till the day she died, but continued to teach and issue licenses. Now, sort of after I get through all this painful process, I'll sort of try to give some sense to it. Now, 
This woman is named Hajar. And unlike many jurists of her time, she never had a kunya. And she was known by her first name. They used to call her Hajar. So in other words, she was not named Um Kaza or Um such and such. And at the time, let's see for our specialist, she's from Cairo, she's a Shafi'i. Uh, she was born in the year 990. But at the time, she, she became the most reliable authority in her field, which, is, which was a qawa'id al-fiqhiyya, principles of fiqh, the most reliable authority of her time. And he doesn't say of the women of her time. He says of her time. وَصَارَتْ أَسْنَدْ أَهْلَ عَصْرِهَا وَتَزَاحَمَ عَلَيْهَا الْطَلَبَةُ وَكُنْتُ مِمَّنْ حَمَلَ عَنْهَا قَدِيمًا so, so. so she became the most reliable authority of her time, not restricted to females, وَتَزَاحَمْ عَلَيْهَا الطَّلَبَةِ What does that mean? Many students started just flocking towards her. And I was one of the people, the author is bragging here. This is the author sort of like bragging a bit about himself. And he says, I was one of these few people who learned from her rare things. That no one else knew about. And she was like many others of the faqihas of the time. Okay, here it is. وَتَزَاحَمْ عَلَيْهَا الطَّلَبَةِ وَكُنْتُ مِمَّنْ حَمَلَ عَنْهَا قَدِيمًا أَشْيَاءَ قَلِيلًا وَنَادِرًا وَكَانَتْ عَلَى نَمَطِ الْكَثِيرِ مِنَ الْمَشَايِخِ فِي مِنَ مِنَ الْمَشَايِخِ Here of course it refers to women فِي عَدَمْ التَّحَجُّبِ وَنَحْوُهُ Oh, sorry. That she was like many of the shiuch, the professors of her time, in not being... Tahajjub here could have two meanings. Either wearing the official hijab today, or not teaching behind the curtain. And I think it's, it's probably not teaching behind the curtain. In other words, that they used to sit face to face like we do today. And it's like that that she she wouldn't wear hijab or it's like. What time is it? Seven thirty? Okay. More No no no. We're we're still we're still in the process of boring you. Uh most most. Yeah, no, I tell you why I chose yours. And I'll tell you why I chose yours. Poets. Oh yes, women, you know, they're 
They're romantic, you know. <laughs> they recite poetry. So what? Okay, let's let's pick something else other than poets. What? Um, Arabs were known for their innovation during those times. Scientists, you would need someone who uh, has half a brain to understand science to research scientists, and I, I don't. Agree. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I don't have that. So. Scientists are too far above my level for me to comprehend. The oh, they are. They are, of course. But of course, I skipped over them because I only respect my kind. <laughs> but actually, if I would have thought of it, I would have included some of the scientists because now that you mention it, it's, uh, it's quite interesting. But I, I fo focused on jurists because I'll, I'll tell you why. And, and I'll tell you, no, seriously, I mean, I'm sort of giving you a tongue-in-cheek response, but poetry, you can always put them on the, shy, on, on the side. Scientists, you can say, well, you know, okay, she sat in her home doing her mathematical equations, doing her experiments, writing her books, but she never saw any men or no man ever saw her. She was never a part of the discourse in society, unless she was a professor. And here is where I would have included them, professors in science. Okay. A jurist deals with Islam, and therefore if a jurist is raising a rule of Islam, no one's going to respect Exactly. So, so the importance of jurists is that we're dealing with Sharia here. I mean, no one can come and tell me, oh yes, but she, she wasn't a pious woman. Oh yes, but she wasn't a true Muslim. If, if she has an Izazah in Sharia, then by definition, she is more pious than you or I. And by definition, she is more knowledgeable than you or I. Okay. Now, this woman is from, from Iran. And I chose her for a very simple reason. She is from the 4th century Hijra. Because, وَسَمِعْنَا And here, I, I want those of you who know Arabic to translate. وسمعنا أن زوجها مع غاية فضله كان يستفسر عنها في حل بعض عبارات قواعد الأحكام. What does that mean? No. Yeah, we heard that her husband, despite his high stature, غاية فضله, that he was an important man, he used to seek her assistance in solving some of the problems that met him in dealing with qawa'ad al-ahkam, the principles of fiqh. So in other words, she used to explain some of these principles to her husband. Her name is Amina al-Majlisi from Iran. Fourth century Hijra. I'm, I'm not sure exactly. This woman was born in Najaf. Her name is Umm Ali al-Hassoun. Uh, I don't know why, but I can't find a year for her death. Anyway. She sa he says that this woman grew up in a normal family that was not particularly a family of knowledge. But then she married her cousin. And her cousin was Samahat al-Shaykh Zuhair al-Hassoun. Her, her cousin was a sheikh. And at that time, the doors of knowledge opened to her because 
he became very concerned in teaching her what he knew. And she became very concerned in learning from him what he knew. Until she studied with him the fiqh and usul al-fiqh and grammar and balagha, eloquence and hadith and the science of men and authentication. After that, he issued her a certificate. Science of men. Science of men meaning the 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 ilm hadith rajal the the narrators science of narrators. Okay. Which okay. were not only men. Which were not only men, but they're called ilm rajal, which is sort of a literal translation. And then Umm Hassoun, after that, becomes a jurist in her own right and starts teaching her own halaqa at at her home. This woman. Is called, she's quite late, and I chose her because she's from Iran, and she is possibly the only faqiha that existed in the last 200 years. Her name is Al-Ulwiyah, Al-Aminiyah, Al-Asfahaniyah. She's from Iran. She died in the year 100-404 Hijrah. And she attained 1,000... 404 Hijra, and I'm sorry, yeah, she died in that year. So, uh, that's, that's, yeah. Hmm? 10 years ago. Yeah, she died about 10 years ago. Yeah. No, this is an actually more modern synthesis. Yeah. This is, this is a, a collection of A'lam and Nisa from, from different sources. And actually, if you notice, there are actually Xeroxes from a variety of books. I left a Sakhawi a while ago, so I hope you're not... Yeah, a Sakhawi was left when I sort of dropped that big, big bulky thing. Now, she, interestingly, obtained the degree of Al-Ijtihad Al-Mutlaq. What's Al-Ijtihad Al-Mutlaq? No, Al-Ijtihad Al-Mutlaq. Huh? Com completely independent ijtihad. It is the highest level of ijtihad any human being can attain. In other words, it's the it's it's the black belt with the, it's a black belt with ten banas added to it. In other words, it's not just the ijtihad over one mashab. It is independent ijtihad that you can now authoritatively write about Sharia completely independently from anything. And this woman is only 10 years ago? Yeah, only about 10 years ago. And she is the last Muslim jurist in the last 200 years. The last of all men and women Muslim She is the last woman Muslim jurist in the last 10 years, in the last 200 years. In fact, I would say probably in the last 300 years, to be quite honest. Yeah, she was a Shiite. She's from Iran, Asfahan. Now, She obtained ijazas beyond our ability to count. وَطَلَبَ مِنْهَا عَدَدْ And a whole lot of them begged her or asked her to give them an ijazah, which she granted to some and refused some. And then he says, she received an ijazah. Anyone Shiite here, by the way? Okay, good. 
They, they tend to be uh, just to uh, which uh, who told there is some there is someone who has me on a memnoa list. So uh, for the memnoa list, I tend to love Shiites. So <laughs> add that to the blacklist. She received an ijazah for ishtihad from al-Sheikh Qasim al-Shirazi. She received an ijazah for an ishtihad from al-Sheikh al-Ha'iri. And the Shiites will realize these names. She received an ishtihad from al-Sheikh al-Hisini al-Shirazi. She received an ijazah in ishtihad from al-Najafi al-Asfahani. And she received an another ijazah in ishtihad from al-Muzahiri al-Najafi al-Asfahani. She wrote seven books, five of which are in Persian and two in Arabic. No, the Arabic she wrote in Arabic. Uh, by, the, the way, by the way, a, a Shiite jurist becomes a mujtahid mutlaq is that they have to write a book in fiqh in Arabic. And if you don't do that, you can't attain the, the, uh, the level of mujtahid mutlaq. You have to know Arabic, perfect it even better than Persian. No, he, oh, has anything been translated? Uh, in, in Arabic, no, I'll tell you, actually we'll get into that. No, nothing translated to English. Of her two Arabic books, none of them can be found in the Middle East. And because I've looked everywhere for them. Both of them are books on fiqh. And I've looked really everywhere. Uh... Well, both of them were on fiqh, but there is one, Risalat al-Arba'in al-Hashamiyya, there is Al-Nafahat al-Rahmaniyya, Al-Waridat al-Qalbiyya, there is Rawsh Awliya al-Tariq, there is Sharh al-Tabsira, you know, several, yeah. Then, the most important thing is, any of the Shiites here know Shaykh al-Mar'ashi? Oh, come on. <laughs> Sheikh al-Mar'ashi is one of the most important faqihs of this century, period. Sunni or Shiai. One of the most important faqih of the century. And guess who gave him his ijazah for ishtihad? Here, she did. Sheikh al-Mar'ashi gave an ijazah for ishtihad to Shaykh al-Mudarisi. Okay. Now, if I haven't completely lost you in boredom, who would like to hear how one of these ijazas that were given to women sounded like? <laughs> who would absolutely don't want to hear? Okay, fine, let's suffer. Here is an example of an ijazah. Yeah. By ijazah given to women, were they different than ones given to men? What do you mean? No. Okay. And just an ijazah would sound like. Yeah, what an ijazah, but I'm, because the, I, I, by the time you leave her, the idea that, that the, the idea that women and law were sort of married to each other, mm -hmm. I want to be so firmly ground that it cannot be ever erased from your minds again. 
And the only way you do that is sort of by brainwashing. And this is brainwashing, if you haven't noticed. So we are, we are, well, it's not really because if it was, I wouldn't tell you it is. But, you know, I could be so intelligent that I tell you it is, and it really is. But, you know. But anyway, so here, this is an example of Ijazah. He says, this is an Ijazah from a Qazim Shirazi. He starts out by saying, Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen, wa salatu wa salam ala Muhammad Ashraf al-Mursaleen, and so on, wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'een. And by the way, for the Sunnis here, this is a Shiite Ijazah. And he says, wa ala alihi wa sahbihi, wa sahbihi, the Sahaba, right? Then he saw, then for, for those of you who didn't get it, it doesn't matter. Um, by the way, I treat, I treat my students the same way. So, I mean, now you can really feel sorry for them. Uh, they have to put up with me uh, uh, all semester long. So now you can appreciate your, your, your uh, TAs here and lecturers and stuff like that. He starts off by, by saying, the privilege, the distinct privilege of knowledge can never be hidden. And its divine nature can never be adequately described. And this is why everyone seeks it. And this is why everyone, and this is why so many dedicate their lives to it. And the As-Sayyidah, Al-Jalilah, Al-Nasibah, I'm sorry, Al-Sayyidah, Al-Jalilah, Al-Nabilah, Al-Hasibah, Al-Alimah, Al-Fadilah, Al-Ghurrah, Al-Nasibat Nisa' Asriha. Can anyone translate all these? Okay, the women. The, 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 the Sayyidah, Sayyidah is um, the, um, the respectable uh, women. Al-Jalilah, the honorable. Al-Nabilah, the noble. Al-Hasibah, the... Uh, where's Hasib? The, no, the, no, no, Hasibah is uh, the, the, the one that comes from honor, uh, from, from great origins. Um, Al-Alima, Al-Alima is what? The knowledgeable. Al-Fadila, the, 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 um, the, uh, um, God, the English language just doesn't fit Arabic. Uh, Al-Fadila is the, more than just the honorable, but also the one that is, is, combines honor with a sense of extreme morality. غُرَّة غُرَّة نَصِيَّة نِسَاء عَصْرِهَا Anyone know what this means? The jewel of the women of her time وَأَوَعْجُوبَ الظَّهْرِهَا And the miracle of her age الْحَاجِّيَّة The حَاجَّة Then he names her خَانِمْ دَامَتْ تَأِيدَةً So on, so on, so on, so on, so on, so on And then he goes on for, for, for about five lines naming her putting all her names. She has passed the examinations in fiqh and usul. And she was examined on the shuruh, the commentaries. And she was examined in the subtleties of the issues. And in the depths, in the depths of the matters. And she has shown an ability for istimbat and usuliyya. 
in dealing with al-ahkam, an ability for deductive reasoning and a certain way of thinking in dealing with law. And we all pray to Allah and thank Him for this great blessing and for the blessing of this great woman who has reached the highest level, al-martaba al-aliyya. And consequently, we, meaning al-Shirazi, Muhammad Qasim al-Shirazi, bestow upon her the degree of ishtihad. And she has the right to re- narrate from me what is correctly proven to be from me. But she also has the right to independently interpret what has been narrated from me as well as from my shiuch. Okay. The ijazas differ by the age, not by the sex. And what I wanted to do, but I stupidly forgot it, is, and then you'll just have to sort of take my word for it, because I, I don't have it, so I can't <coughs> sort of prove it to you. Uh, this is why I like texts, because you know then that someone is not just sitting there and inventing things. Um, the ijazas vary, their, their, their style varies according to the time, and according to the locality, and according to the... the, the um, nature of the ijazah. For example, if you are being issued an ijazah, uh, a license to narrate a book, nothing more than that. In other words, you've been tested over one book, you've passed the exam over that one book, that's it. Then of course it wouldn't say, it wouldn't say the jewel of his time or her time, the, the great, talented, brilliant. It would just say the faithful, diligent student, uh, we give him uh, a license or her a license over this book. If you are being issued an ijazah over a mazhab, a certain school of thought, it wouldn't say the jewel of the time, the, the, the. It would say the faqih in the mazhab, the knowledgeable in the mazhab, and so on. Also, it tended to vary according to the, the, the age. Some ages tended to be much more flowery than others. Now, what I wanted to bring to you was in the modern age, and I can't believe that I didn't, it's one of the things that I'll regret probably for the rest of my life. Uh, um, was ijazas that were issued to me, and that were issued to several couple of women who were also in the same halaqah by the same sheikh. And what I was going to do was have you compare the ijazah that was issued over the same material to me to the ijazah that was issued over the same exact material to the woman. Now you have to take my word for it. We were in the same halaqah, we were tested over the same matter. And there, there is no darajat. You either pass or fail, and the majority fail. You know, out of 30, maybe three will get ijazas. Sometimes no one will get an ijazah. 
And with all due respect, and that's why I'm not going to name the shiuk, with all due respect to the... ...any man or no man ever saw her. She was never a part of the discourse in society, unless she was a professor. And here, 